It was proving to be a torrid summer, and writer Paul Harrison was here to share some tips from the stars. Hot day ideas. More notes on keeping cool. Janet Gaynor keeps an electric fan blowing over a chunk of dry ice in her dining room. Patsy Kelly eats salt. Fred McMurray eats lots of watermelon. Dick Ferran, tough horse opera star, fans himself. According to reporter Dan Thomas, not even Gloria Stewart could catch a break. Poor Gloria Stewart. Some old meanie has started erecting a two-story mansion right next to her home, which means that Gloria no longer will be able to enjoy those sunbathing siestas in her backyard. The sweltering heat also brought about a successful string of hits as moviegoers sought out shelter from the sun. For the first time in her career, Patsy Kelly would eschew short films in favor of feature-length comedies. America's moviegoing audience had four opportunities to see Patsy in 1936. The Brooklyn-born star could be found in Private Number, Kelly II, Sing Baby Sing, and Pigskin Parade. When Patsy wasn't acting in a major motion picture, she was in the theater watching one. She goes to movies five nights a week, reported writer Harold Hefferman. Kelly has been in every movie house in Los Angeles. What do you do the other two nights? The comedian was asked. Well, she replied with a sigh, there's nothing really for me to do. I just sit around wishing there were more pictures to see. But when you see eight or ten pictures a week, the supply really runs out. The other night, Patsy and a friend decided to drive out to Long Beach, 30 miles from her home, to catch up on one of her pictures. Kelly the second. When she got into the theater, she found there were two Patsy Kelly features on the program. The other was Pigskin Parade, and sandwiched in between was a Patsy Kelly trailer advertising Sing Baby Sing. It was what you call a big Kelly night, she said. I never sat through so much Kelly in all my life, even in a screening room, and when I came out, it was with the firm conviction that double bills and Kelly pictures should be limited. As Patsy's success continued skyward, it was clear that not everyone agreed with the star's sentiment. Patsy may be a hit on the screen, but nothing she has enacted so far can match her off-screen popularity, suggested Ruth White of the Ben Bulletin. Wherever you find a laughing group on the soundstage, you will find Patsy in the center of it. She's everybody's friend, as kindly with the prop boys as she is with the most famous stars. She has helped hundreds of studio folk, both financially and with advice. Still, despite Kelly's astronomical success in Hollywood, the star was still reeling from the unexpected loss of her best friend. Patsy and Thelma Todd were together all the time, continued Ruth. They worked all day long in the comedies and planned their futures together at night. No one suffered more or felt Thelma's loss more keenly than Patsy. Thelma's sudden death was a stunning blow. In traditional Kelly fashion, the charismatic comedian would redirect the conversation to self-effacing anecdotes and splashy stories. It was a sustained measure of self-preservation both practiced and practical given the nature of her experiences. 
but the movie star's rhapsodic wit didn't work on everyone. When filming the MGM comedy Merrily We Live, Patsy found herself next to an unresponsive rowing partner. A tense situation has developed at the Hal Roach Studios between Constance Bennett and Patsy Kelly, said Jimmy Fiddler. It seems that when Patsy came to work the first day, Connie said, I'm glad to have you in my picture. But the second day, for some unaccountable reason, Miss Bennett failed to speak to Miss Kelly at all. When Bennett heard these uncomplimentary allegations over the airwaves, the irate actress promptly sued Fiddler for $250,000. She accused the notorious newsman of libeling her in a radio broadcast. Patsy took the cantankerous feud in stride. Of course she did. Whether good or bad, it was clear that the famed comedian was enjoying press of all stripes. In 1939, an unsuspecting Kelly would have erupted in flames, if not for the helping hand of one Hedda Hopper. And what did the reviled reporter receive in return? Nothing but playful admonishment, of course. I visited Patsy on the gorilla set, recalled Hopper. The Irish thrush had no story, but when I suddenly saw her cigarette almost touch her hair, I did my good deed for the day and pushed her hand away. Patsy cracked out. And you call yourself a newspaper woman? Why didn't you push my hand in the other direction? You would have had an exclusive headline. Eyewitness account. Patsy Kelly burned up. Done it herself. The gallows humor proved to have real-life consequences when the comedian fell ill later that year. In hopes of a swift recovery, she retreated to her home in New York City, where her neighbor played Maxine Sullivan records morning, noon, and night. Before long, the sojourn became an extended period of recovery. I had an appendicitis and gallstones at the same time, said Patsy. It was the first time my doctors drawn that combination, so I didn't get a club rate. I found no one in New York who would listen to me while I went on about my gallstones and appendix. They cut me to pieces, but I was brave. While Patsy was laid up, she received a fair share of fan mail. A lot of letters are gimmies, she told George Tucker of the Herald News. You must make a lot of money. Loan me a thousand dollars. When she returned to Hollywood, the request did not end. According to reporter Paul Harrison, Children would occasionally drop their autograph book on top of Patsy's omelet when she dined in L.A. Alice Hughes of the Springfield Daily News was thrilled about the comedian's return to health, saying, May Patsy's jobs be plentiful and good. We can use a lot of laughs from this rough-and-tumble gal from across the East River. Meanwhile, writer Gladwin Hill was especially effusive when it came to Patsy Kelly's Ability to absorb punishment. When Patsy gets slugged with a baseball bat, you feel the slug yourself. And she doesn't mind the prospect of perpetual sluggings with baseball bats and the like. Before she was out of the rompers, she had hit two of the toughest sections of New York City. That's one way to put it. If Patsy had no problem being walloped with baseball bats, she might know her way around them. That was the idea behind the Brooklyn Dodgers' decision to name Kelly their honorary Bat Boy during the 1941 World Series. The hard-luck comedian did not 
bring any good fortune to Pee Wee Reese and company as the boys in blue fell to the New York Yankees four games to one. When the dust settled, Patsy Kelly returned to Hollywood. The actor's next picture would be the ill-fated Playmates. Reporter D. Lawrence visited the chaotic set and took notice of the rocky surroundings. Actor Lupe Velez was tossing peach pits at prop men. It was wild. Lupe Velez was sitting cross-legged on a bench, eating peaches out of a paper bag and potting a prop man with the peach stones. Every so often, she stopped munching the juicy fruit long enough to offer a peach to a passerby. Then Patsy Kelly walked by with that near waddle of hers and gingerly stepping over Lupe's two chihuahuas, cracked to anyone who might be listening. Seems to me one good straight man could walk off with this picture. Nobody walked off with the picture, but they did walk in with the dustpan. In the movie, Lupe Villas, John Barrymore, and Patsy ended up throwing vases at one another. Are you all right? Director David Butler asked Patsy Kelly when it was all over. Patsy dusted herself off and scoffed at the concern. Me? Who spent years in Hal Roach comedies? Why, the last six months I was there, they were throwing me at vases. Patsy was used to getting absolutely bodied on set. But she soon learned that some of her co-stars did not appreciate being bopped and bruised as much as Thelma Todd once did. During the filming of Ladies' Day, Kelly became particularly carried away. Here is reporter Arthur Whitney. Maxie Bayer, who doesn't want to be known as a madcap anymore since turning serious, suffered bruises today as painful as any ever inflicted in the prize ring. He was kicked repeatedly on the shin by comedian Patsy Kelly. Bayer wore a baseball shin guard on his left leg. Miss Kelly was supposed to land there when she kicked him. We watched Bayer and Miss Kelly go through the scene several times and thought that if the expression on Bayer's face wasn't real, it was marvelous acting. Bayer said it was real. Miss Kelly was kicking the wrong leg. Every time, Bayer said, she kicks the wrong leg. Look at that egg, he pointed to a bluish bump on the right shin. Despite Kelly's sustained success with moviegoers and critics alike, the comedian's popularity began to precipitously decline with those in the industry. At odds with the increasingly conservative studio system and the imperiously restrictive Hayes Code, Patsy's voice as a queer woman was seen as a liability to decision-makers. In the book Gay L.A., Lillian Fetterman and Stuart Timmons assert that Kelly's public declarations were seen as a detrimental threat. Patsy Kelly dared to declare in the fan magazine motion picture that she had been living for several years with another actress, Wilma Cox. Obviously, she was not free to use the L word in the 1930s, but she could say that the home she'd made with Wilma was decorated in blue and white because those were Wilma's favorite colors, and that she had no thoughts of marrying because I'm having too much fun as I am. I like my life. I'm happy. Later in her career, Patsy would tell author Bose Hadley, I'm a big dyke, so what? Big deal. 
with scrutiny circling the comedian 1943's Women at Work would prove to be Kelly's final film appearance. She would later say, Retirement is just a nice word for being out of a job. After being pushed out of the film industry, the one-time star returned to the stage. Because Patsy had extensive vaudeville experience, she had little difficulty finding work. The comedian played modestly-sized venues such as the Raleigh Room and the Chase Club. In the Unforgiving Ohio winter of 1945, a reporter from the Bucyrus Telegraph Forum spotted the freezing cold actor in Cleveland. Comedian Patsy Kelly climbed aboard a drugstore counter stool and dabbed at a red nose that showed even through her heavy stage makeup. Give me a frosted chocolate, she groaned, oblivious to the zero weather outside. The counter girl, eyeing her mournfully, didn't get it. A frosted chocolate, you know, said Miss Kelly. Vanilla ice cream, chocolate. We don't have vanilla, we have royal. What's royal? asked Patsy, blowing vigorously. It's a kind of mixture of different kinds of cream. You know, royal. Well, can you make me a chocolate malted with some of that stuff? Anything, I don't care, but give me something. That out of the way, she spun around on the stool and said she didn't know about her picture future. They're on to me out there. I may get a new radio show pretty soon, but plans aren't very definite. Oh, this cold. She's had it for a month in her current three-day vaudeville stint, in which she dances, sings, wrestles, leaps, and cavorts on the draft stages. It isn't helping any. Four months later, Patsy appeared in St. Louis at the Chase Club for a two-week engagement. Sharing the stage would be singer Barry Wood. This act left a lot to be desired. Kelly was the recipient of cheap blows, tawdry jokes, and wooden one-liners. Example, Patsy, I'm in the neighborhood of 25 years old. Barry, yes, but that neighborhood was torn down long ago. Yikes. Around this time, reporter Dorothy Kilgallen would periodically write about mystery ailments that befell Kelly. One such story simply said that the comedian was hobbling on a broken ankle, while another cryptically asserted that she was to undergo an operation in the East. No context was provided. Kilgallen later wrote that Patsy fell in a table and cut her eye completely out, and that, quote, expert surgery will save it. I'm completely befuddled by these isolated announcements as I did not find any corroborating statements elsewhere. I'm under the impression that Dorothy was just making things up for readership. Anyway, Patsy spent much of the late 1940s tirelessly touring the country. Kelly has been constantly traveling, Marjorie Adams of the Boston Globe wrote. She is starring at the Latin Quarter nightclub right now. It's the fourth nightclub she has ever been in. And she says that the movie producers got wise to me. 80 times or more, she has crossed the United States, making personal appearances on the stage. She knows the loneliness of hotel rooms, the bleak prospect of eating three meals a day by herself. She leaves trunks of clothes in various storage houses. She can't carry her whole wardrobe around with her as she has no home. Okay, I'm going to stop for a second. 
I feel like Marjorie is really going to town with these descriptions. She has maybe too much paint on the palette. Okay, may- maybe it gets better. Let's jump back in. Patsy has three sisters. One of them, Mrs. Bridget Fairhaven, lives in County Mayo, Ireland. And Patsy has never seen her. Patsy was born in this country after the Kellys came to Brooklyn. Bridget remained back in County Mayo and is now the mother of 13 children. Another of Patsy's sisters has five offspring. The third has two children. And here is Patsy with no husband. Oh, okay, that's it. Marjorie Adams has to go. It did not get better. The worst came in 1947 as someone broke into the comedian's hotel room and stole a good luck bracelet and $185 in cash. The bracelet was a yellow gold chain type with the names Todd and Kelly engraved inside. This tucked away passage in a now forgotten newspaper article absolutely breaks my heart. I hope Patsy was able to eventually retrieve the bracelet but I was unable to find any follow-up articles on this story. As the 1950s emerged, so did the resilient Patsy Kelly. When the Taurine regular marched into the Hilltop Theater of the Sheraton Belvedere Hotel, she was met by Virginia Tracy of the Baltimore Evening Sun. Here is an actress who has no yen to play Shakespeare, began Tracy. One who doesn't give a hoot about being a glamour girl, and never wastes a moment's worry about which side of her physiognomy is facing the audience. Meet Patsy Kelly, the same what-the-heck character offstage that she is on the other side of the footlights. A lady who is quite content to leave the customers laughing. Let somebody else make him weep. She has the same hairdo. I go to good hairdressers, but they ask me not to tell anybody. And same unattached status. I'm still trying. Well, that last part's not necessarily true. Around this time, the only thing Patsy was trying to do was see Tallulah Bankhead in peace. Patsy Kelly, the marvelous Hollywood comedian of the 1930s, had fallen on hard times and was traveling with Tallulah in that typically ambiguous space between employee, friend, and lover wrote Joel Lobenthal in Tallulah, The Life and Times of a Leading Lady. Strangely enough, a few readership letters made their way into the movie question box of the Boston Globe, including this particularly coincidental one. Question. Have Tallulah Bankhead and Patsy Kelly ever been married? Signed, E.K.S. Somerville. Answer. Tallulah married John Emergy in 1937. They were divorced in 1941. I have no record of a marriage for Patsy Kelly. By 1958, Patsy was well known as a nightclub act. Jackie Peterson of the San Francisco Examiner dared to ask, remember Patsy Kelly? Her best-known trademarks were the eternal gestures of impatience, hands on hips, quick shrugs, side glances, and rasping off-the-cuff wisecracks. Patsy's come to town a little grayer, a bit heavier than she used to be, but otherwise she's the same old gal. Patsy would play coast-to-coast with the occasional radio or television appearance until 1967 when Paramount Studios came knocking. The unexpected second act saw the one-time star play a supporting role in Rosemary's Baby. Vernon Scott, a UPI Hollywood correspondent, 
caught up with the surprised actor. She is playing one of her first straight dramatic roles, that of a nosy neighbor in Rosemary's Baby. In a sense, it's my first straight role, said Patsy. At least there are no laughs intended in the part, but it could always turn out to be funny. Suddenly, throngs of newspaper reporters were once again interested in the veteran performer's career. I looked in on the Rosemary Baby set to see the cradle. If you read Ira Levin's Weird and Wonderful book, you know which cradle, and it gave me the proper case of creeps, said entertainment reporter Dick Kleiner. While I was there, I sought out Patsy Kelly, one of my old favorites. The first thing when I go to the theater, she says, I'm going to throw holy water at the screen. On the heels of Patsy's success in Rosemary's Baby, she was offered a role in the revival of No No Nanette. The last time the comedian appeared on Broadway was in 1932. There was some expected hesitancy until she received news that her lifelong friend Ruby Keeler had signed on. In January of 1971, the production would officially open in Boston, a tryout town. The two hoofers felt indescribably nervous. Who could blame them? Ruby comes out and does her number, and we hear big noises from out front, Patsy told Don Freeman of the Copley News Service. Let's get out of here, honey, I whispered on stage to Ruby. They're coming to get us. But the noise was really just seats going up fast as the audience rose to cheer. I'm over 40 years in show business, worked with the greatest from Will Rogers to Frank Fade to Lula Bankhead, and I never heard anything like it. All that cheering and stomping. Now it happens every night, and I still get the same wonderful duck bumps. When Ruby and I were announced for the show, the reaction was, Those two old bats? They can't even walk, and they're coming back to do a Broadway musical? Now those same sophisticated New Yorkers are telling us we're an unqualified smash. A breath of fresh air, Patsy joked to Barbara L. Wilson of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Ruby, Miss Kelly praised is truly remarkable. How about the way she moves on stage? I guess all that golf she has played has helped. Me, I haven't walked fast in 40 years. I've gotten my exercise from lobby to taxi. For her part in the revival, Patsy would end up winning a well-deserved Tony Award for Best Supporting Actress. There are wonderful photos of Ruby and Patsy from this time in the New York Public Library. Black and white snapshots of the friends laughing together before the show and discussing topics unknown. Pals together once again. Patsy would pass away on September 24th of 1981 at the age of 71. It's hard to imagine a world without a new Patsy Kelly quote even though we've been living in one for 42 years. Patsy found a patch of shade for herself in a world that was largely absent of shelter. Even with all of the loss in her life, she continued to make those around her happy. Kelly believed it was the only way to truly live. Fellow comedic actress Carol Lombard said it best when describing the tragic and unfair line between sorrow and joy. 
Why take yourself so seriously? Nobody knows about it or cares except you, and you are one of millions, a tiny dot in the ocean of time. Stop fussing. I stopped and felt better. Other experiences in my life have taught me that these things are not the important things. Love is the important thing. But in my particular case, it seems to be my destiny that just as I grow to care for someone very much, that person is snatched away from me in some way. When next I see you, I'll try to live up to my reputation for being the gayest of the gay. Sometimes I am. Answer to the previous puzzle, The Life of Patsy Kelly, was written and created by Rob Patrick. Episode four, our final episode, was voiced by Bridie Elliott, Sophie Zucker, Thomas Lewis, Sherry Page, Jesse Knight, and Eric Jennings. Podcast art by Courtney Lasseur, theme and closing songs by Crockett King, Original music by Noah East to Ali Rosenberg.